Welcome back to Imago Gay, a podcast dedicated to the value of Imago Day because equality and dignity of BIPOC and LGBTQ lives matter. I think Cambridge beat out everybody because they opened up City Hall at midnight of the day that they could allow equal marriage and the, the City Hall was oh, wow. flooded and people just came out of their homes and in the dark of night and just like outside celebrating. Provincetown, a lot of people went to Provincetown to be married and folks were sending, just like calling up every florist in Provincetown saying, just deliver flowers to everybody <laughs> in line. So like every single florist is like delivering flowers to complete strangers. It was just because wow. everybody was like, we don't know how long this is also going to last. So it was a pretty incredible time. Today, I'm speaking with Gretchen Van Ness, civil rights attorney and executive director at a new project that focuses on LGBTQ senior housing. She is the past president of the Women's Bar Association of Massachusetts and recognized as one of Boston's top LGBTQ leaders by Boston Magazine. Gretchen has decades of experience in community activism and representing and advocating for the LGBTQ community. She was part of major movements in the 90s and 2000s that led to the Equal Marriage Act in 2015. Today, we're listening into her story, along with the history of LGBTQ rights and the legislation that continues to impact LGBTQ people today. On November 19th of this week, there was another deadly assault on the LGBTQ community in Colorado. Five were killed, 17 were injured. Among them were Daniel Aston, Kelly Loving, Raymond Green Vance, Derek Rump, and Ashley Greenpaw. I would encourage you to get to know the people we lost and their stories, because these are the gems we lose when ideologies run rampant and we fail to place the vulnerable at the center of our care. There are so many stories of injustice happening each day to Black, Indigenous, Latinx, and LGBTQ lives. In our current political climate, it's important that we know our history so that we can continue to protect the lives of the marginalized among us. And the LGBTQ Senior Housing Project will give us inspiration for how to move forward with light, hope, and vision for a better tomorrow. My name is Gretchen Van Ness, and I live in the Hyde Park neighborhood of Boston. It's a part of Boston people don't know too well. It's the furthest south and western neighborhood of Boston. And I think we're the last part of the greater Boston area that was annexed to become the city of Boston. So we joined the city of Boston in, I think, 1906. But Hyde Park was settled back in the 1860s as sort of an interesting community. It was the first planned community where pre-built houses were sold to people who wanted to live on the hills of Fairmont Hills. So there's an interesting history about the 25 founders of Hyde Park and their houses, they were all built exactly alike and folks bought their houses and either lived here and worked in Boston or lived here and commuted to family and friends in Philadelphia because we were right on the rail line for that. And some of the early people who lived in Hyde Park include the Grimke sisters who were early abolitionists and suffragists who fought for women's right to vote, but also to end slavery. The first woman to ever address a state legislature anywhere in the country was Sarah Grimke when she addressed the Massachusetts state legislature years before Frederick Douglass did. So, and he was also the first black man to ever ever address the state legislature. So Massachusetts has some great history and this neighborhood has some fantastic history, but moved here after living in the Jamaica Plain neighborhood of Boston, which is a very gay friendly place. 
I have been an out gay person since my college days many decades ago. So in a lot of ways, all of my decisions and work as a civil rights attorney and the kinds of cases that I got involved in, the clients that I had and the opportunities that I had in the nonprofit sector with social organizing and social justice work have all been about making things better for the LGBTQ community and for other communities that continue to be outcasts, women, people of color, the disability community. So these were the folks, I was a plaintiff's litigation attorney and did as much impact litigation as I could on issues around pregnancy discrimination. Believe it or not, we still have, I had a client who was fired when she told her boss that she was pregnant. Oh my Um, gosh. I had the client who was fired when he told his boss that he was gay. And I had the client who was fired when he was late to work which you would think would be a neutral reason to fire someone, but he was the only black guy on the crew and all the white guys could be laid all the time and they were never fired. So I had his wow. case. And I had the the client who applied for an internship. So she was had gone back to college after having her family. So she was older than the typical college student. And she applied to Atlantic Magazine for an editorial internship. And she actually got a letter back from the magazine saying she was too old. Oh, wow. Way to incriminate yourself. (laughs) As we went through that case, the Boston Globe, we decided we better um, do some publicity because this could not have been the only person. I mean, this is the interesting thing about doing this kind of work. People often think I'm the only one that's experienced this, but that's never the case in workplaces. So we got a exclusive with the Boston Globe newspaper, so long as they published the actual letter on the letterhead that Mm -hmm. told my client that she was too old. And then sure enough, two more people contacted me because they had had the same experience. So we live in a world that is constantly changing. We know that things are much, much better than they have been in the past. But as I've always said, especially about progress for the LGBTQ community, our progress can't proceed in a straight line by definition. <laughs> so <laughs> we always have to um, <laughs> think about this as a, as a give and take and that yeah. that will make progress in one area and there's going to be backlash and there's things that always get revealed that need to be addressed as we go along too. So I love this. So in so many ways, you as a civil rights attorney my hero. Like I think when I was in high school, I was like, oh, I want to be an attorney. And of course, life has its has its winds and its turns. But just to see kind of the pivotal impact on the grounds, grassroots kind of work that you guys do, like I'm so incredibly grateful for you to be on the podcast today. And a part of this is exactly what you shared. We don't want people to feel alone in their experiences of discrimination, of marginalization, of abuse that happens, even in the church, especially like Mm -hmm. that there are places where we do feel all alone. And so I kind of want to share a little bit about your story, because there's so much strength in that. And I know you've been a part of so many monumental pieces of LGBTQ history. I was wondering if you can share a little bit about that. 
Sure, sure. So I came to Boston for law school, and I've told the story many times. It just so happened that I came apartment hunting the weekend that the Pride Parade happens in Boston. Mm-hmm. And I was so excited because I'd spent, I'd spent days looking for an apartment and had finally figured out a th- something that was seemed like it was going to work and signed a lease and was going to head back to upstate New York where I was living at the time the next day. But it was Saturday morning, and there was a parade happening in Boston, our, some of my friends told me. So I went down to Boston Common. Sure enough, it was the annual Pride Parade. And by the time I was a a lawyer in Boston and had some litigation involving this parade, this was a massive 200, 300, 400,000 people would show up for this parade. But in 1985, when I was just looking at law schools, there were 20,000 people. And it seemed like the most amazing thing I had ever seen. People, LGBTQ community out celebrating in the streets of Boston, just this wonderful parade route that went around downtown Boston and Charles Street. And as we came up Charles Street, I don't know if you're familiar with it, there were people hanging out their windows and just like Mardi Gras and everyone was cheering and bubbles and confetti and treats and all of these things and then coming into Boston Common. And I just stopped and watched the parade as it came into Boston Common. And I was so excited because it was led by groups like PFLAG, the parents and families of lesbian and gay people. And this is that always is wonderful to see when families support our community and us as individuals. And then all the churches that, that were in the parade, and that's always a cool thing. And exactly. then all colleges and universities and every single college and university went by, except the one that I had applied to and I was accepted to, and I was like, going to be attending from law school. So <laughs> I thought, oh no, I've made a terrible mistake. Oh so, my gosh. Because there was no no Boston College Law School group or even Boston College group in the parade. Wow. Um, and, but all that meant was that we had to get organized. So I started in my first year of law school at Boston College and met up with the other LGBTQ members of our community. And we decided it was time to start an LGBTQ student law student group. And awesome. um, it was during the height of the AIDS crisis. So there was an awful lot of misunderstanding fear. Mm-hmm. and fear. Yes quite a bit of fear. And so when we started out, we were having our meetings off campus. So we were having potlucks (laughs) in different members' homes. And eventually we felt that we were ready to talk to the dean and and begin the process of getting formally recognized as a student group at the law school. And still because of the fact that at this point in 1985, 86, in the late 80s, there was no protection against discrimination. We could have been kicked out of law school because of our sexual orientation and had no recourse. Could be kicked out of your apartment. You could be kicked out of a store or a restaurant or any number of things um, because of your sexual orientation at that time. So there was a lot of fear. And we picked a a euphemism as the name of our group. Uh, We called ourselves the Coalition for Human Dignity. (laughs) So we called ourselves... So we had an incredibly wonderful dean. He was a Quaker, and we sent a delegation that included me to meet with the dean, and he basically listened to us talk about what we wanted to do, and he said, how can I help? And Mm -hmm. so we ended up founding the first LGBTQ law students group at at Boston College, and I don't know if they march in pride now, but anyway, (laughs) so it's and it still continues today. I just want to just pause on that for a moment. I think it's so looking back in time when there weren't laws protecting discrimination against sexual identity or orientation, like how did you, because I mean, a lot of in churches still today, 
they they fall under the religious liberty clause and like they're allowed to discriminate in ways that there are no recourse. How was that impactful for the community then when it comes to like, I think a part of even, I don't know, the healing process is recognizing that a crime happened. And so in the real world, in the secular space where somebody says, this person fired me because I was gay and there is recourse because we say, well, that's against the law. There's some type of, there's like a rule there to say, okay, well, we know that it's wrong. How was it to exist in a space where it wasn't even recognizing to be wrong to have that kind of discrimination happen? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's such a great question. And I think that, first of all, that that kind of discrimination is wrong. So that kind of knowledge gives you strength. And then it's a matter of like what risks you feel comfortable taking. So in the law school context, the three of us who went went to meet with the dean were the ones who felt like we could take the risk. There were several people in the group that didn't feel that they could take the risk and come out to the dean. But once we got formal recognition, we created the space where that became safer for them to be part and part of the group and be out more and more. I remember thinking in my first job after college. So I went into college thinking I was going to be an English teacher or then thought maybe I'll be a history teacher. And then because of a long story that I could also tell you, I decided to go to law school. And I got a job in a law firm between college and law school because I was supporting myself and had to save some money. And I remember one time walking to work thinking I was not out at work. I was trying to figure out coming out to my family and they were lovely. So that worked out fine. And I just thought, oh my God, this is real. This is real. I can't change who I am, but I really could lose everything because of who I am. And that's sort of an existential fear. And I kind of like put it aside and said, I can't live any other way. I can't be anything else. And so I'm just going to have to figure this out. And thankfully, like I said, my family was lovely and supportive and even though I never really talked about it at work, people knew and were supportive of me at work. And I got into the law school I wanted to get into and began to sort of acquire the tools to do the kind of work that needed to be done. And by the time I graduated law school, there were like six or seven states that had at that point enacted anti-discrimination laws across the country. So we knew that this was possible. The human rights campaign was was tracking these things. There were some gay organizations. So even in Boston in the 1970s, GLAD was founded, Gay and Lesbian Advocates and Defenders, the people that brought us equal marriage and many, many other things that fought AIDS discrimination and really helped change the legal landscape for our community. So all of these groups existed and were working toward eventually in Massachusetts, the anti-discrimination law was passed. And eventually, other litigation brought us equal marriage and down the line and things like that. But I do think that even with legal protections, it doesn't, the system doesn't always work for us and doesn't Mm -hmm. always work for marginalized people. So I went through a recitation of a handful of cases that, where there was a pretty good outcome, but we, we settled the pregnancy discrimination case, but never got a dollar for our client because the restaurant where she worked went bankrupt. So even when there's legal recourse, it doesn't necessarily solve the problem. It doesn't necessarily fix what has to be fixed. But I can tell you what it does do. And one of the most important things that I felt like I could do as the lawyer representing folks who had experienced whatever kind of discrimination and harassment they had experienced was to be the person who believed them 
And mm. that in terms of how one responds to injustice or harm and personal harm is one of the most important things. And I did enough of these. I had enough clients over the almost 15 years I was doing this that I knew that whether people were going to be okay, it wasn't what happened to them, the harassment or the ugly things that were said to them or the loss of their job or their partner or whatever had happened. It was whatever happened next. So if they were believed, if someone said, this is horrible what happened to you, even if they couldn't fix it, then then it was a whole different experience than if the, the harm was just compounded by people who said this was no big deal or it doesn't matter or it's going to continue because we're not going to make a change. So, yeah. so I was the person who would who could interrupt that and say, I believe you. And hopefully they came to me early enough before, <laughs> before the tre- tremendous harm was done. Wow. Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. I think, I think you're right. I think mm-hmm. so much we want to change or there's so much hope sometimes even in the legal system that it's going to bring about the change that we hope to see. And in some cases it does, but some parts, like you're saying, every person can be a part of believing this person's story and being a part of the journey of healing in that regard as well. You you mentioned that all of the things leading up to the gay marriage mm-hmm. uh, inclusion in 2015. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the National Marriage Project and all sure. the little ways that you were parts of moving the needle forward for us. So yes, uh, it's, I actually... I'm old enough that I can say I never expected to see equal marriage in my lifetime. And I still sometimes I'm like pinch myself that this actually happened. So, because like I said, when I was in law school before there was, before Massachusetts enacted its anti-discrimination law, and that there are still the majority of states in this country don't have an anti-discrimination law that protects our communities. So we actually live in this really weird situation where the Supreme Court has said that equal marriage is the law of the land, that everyone has the right to to make the most personal decisions about who they wish to spend their lives with and without government interference. And but so you so in places like I don't know, Alabama, you can go get married, marry your same-sex partner and lose your job the next day. And you don't have any, there's nothing you can do about it. So wow. so the, we live in very interesting country that way. But as I was finishing up my clerkships and I went to work at a small firm before I went out on my own, I started my own law practice. Litigation had begun around the St. Patrick's Day parade in Boston. And when I talk about pride as being this two or three or 400,000 people gathering to celebrate our community. Next biggest celebration in Boston is the historic St. Patrick's Day Parade. And as because of the AIDS crisis, because of what was happening in New York City, that also has a massive St. Patrick's Day Parade, the ACT UP and Queer Nation were, were basically doing everything they could to bring attention to the AIDS crisis. And they grew very militant and very confrontational, especially around uh, the FDA, the, the Republican administrations that refused to respond to this epidemic and refused to devote resources to stopping it. And the Catholic Church that continued to deny the basic humanity of our of our community. And in New York City, ACT UP and Queer Nation had had and gay groups had sought to be in the St. Patrick's Day parade to really raise awareness of the devastation of our community and to call for change. And 
in New York City, the organizers of the St. Patrick's Day Parade are the ancient order of Hibernians. They said, you can't be in it. There was litigation going forward that seemed to support the ancient order of Hibernians keeping the gay group out. And a group of Irish, young Irish and Irish American kids here in, in Boston said, we want to, to also be part of the, the St. Patrick's Day celebrations here in Boston. We want to support our brothers and sisters in New York. We have a huge LGBTQ community here as well. We're part of the Irish family. So they applied to be in the St. Patrick's Day parade. And for the first time in its history, the city of Boston's evacuation day, St. Patrick's Day parade, it's happens on a on a Suffolk County holiday called Evacuation Day, <laughs> which is an old holiday about when the British troops evacuated Boston Harbor without a, a shot being fired because George Washington had arrayed his cannons on the, the cliffs over the harbor and they just left. So it celebrates an early Revolutionary War success battle. And so, but this had grown into a massive, massive city of Boston and celebration, essentially. And so our clients applied, and for the first time in the history of the parade, the, an application was no, a registration. There was no application. All I could do was register. A registration was rejected by the by the parade organizers. Interesting. And, and what so year that, was this? So the late 1990s. So basically what happened was that the group then sued because they said, at this point, we had a brand new anti-discrimination law in Massachusetts. It all prohibited discrimination in the place of public accommodation. The streets and sidewalks and public celebrations are by definition of public accommodation. So they sued for discrimination in the state courts and the state courts agreed. So this very early interpretation of the anti-discrimination law was used to, to as a basis for an injunction to allow my clients to march in the parade. So the parade organizers decided that this was still wrong. They accepted the injunction the first year, and then they decided they were going to privatize the parade. And so um, second, they said they didn't want the city of Boston to be any part of it. They were going to continue to run the parade as a private organization. And then the second year, they tried again to exclude my clients, and we won again. And we won all the way through the appeals courts in Massachusetts, making some of the most amazing pro-gay precedent ever. And then because this, this group was determined not to have my clients in their parade, they appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. And wow. so all this work just to keep some people out yeah. that I mean, I, when I when I hear that, that's immediately what I'm thinking of. Like, that, it's a lot of hard work to be bigoted. Oh, it I really think so is. Too. I think so, too. And you have to be so mad and angry all the time. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> That's really the part I don't understand. Why would you want to be so mad at, at people for so much of, of your life? But Exactly. Um, and so because we had won in the state courts, when the Supreme Court decided to take our case and review it, we knew that we had probably lost. So Interesting. the Supreme Court has discretion about what cases it takes. So it thousands and thousands of petitions are filed every year. And then the court decides what it cases is going to hear. And it only hears a few hundred every year. Hmm. So at that point, we we knew that we were going to the Supreme Court. The petition to, for review of the state decisions was granted. And we were the, at that point, the only the second case that the Supreme Court had ever heard affecting our community. And the first oh. case had been decided in the early 1980s at the height of the AIDS crisis, and it upheld a Georgia statute that criminalized 
sex between same-sex people, essentially. And That's crazy. It's a it's a horrible, ugly, ugly decision, and it that basically I I mean I've read it a few times, but all I can remember of it because it's so horrifying is basically the Supreme Court saying. All major religions and all all countries everywhere have always hated gay people, so we're just going to keep on doing that. Wow, what a great reason! <laughs> exactly, scandalizes <laughs> our community just like that. So that same session, the Supreme Court also agreed to hear a review, a petition seeking review of a constitutional amendment that had been passed in Colorado that would have prevented gay people from ever having civil rights. Oh so God. there were two cases suddenly on the docket involving our community. And so what basically happened was that all of the lawyers working on our case, all the lawyers working on the Colorado case, began to have a weekly phone call, began to talk on a regular basis about how are we going to represent our community and what can we do to make sure that we're doing the best thing we can. And our our thought was we're probably not going to win both of these cases. <laughs> so if we have if there's one that we want to win, because we couldn't believe that the Supreme Court would go from Bowers versus Hard Hardwick with like everybody hates you to giving us two wins at the same time. But the most important case would be the Colorado case because you can't have a constitution that ex- permanently excludes certain people from its protections. So right. so we knew that that was probably the case. But what was interesting as as we were all talking on these regular phone calls. And it was lawyers from all over the country who were either in the LGBTQ community themselves or civil rights attorneys who had had worked for our community and with our community for years. And I, I think that we would have all found each other at some point anyway. But what became clear as we all talked to each other is that no matter where we were in the country, we had all had LGBT clients come to us in our offices and say, we need to get married. And when are you going to make it possible for us to get married? <laughs> and they all wanted us to do something about this because they wanted to get married. <laughs> so, right. and so we knew and that. You Go talked ahead. a little bit about why like marriage is such a yes. much more affordable and equitable option than some of the things that people were having to do before then. Yes, absolutely. And the reason that people want to get married is for all the same reasons that anybody wants to get married. There's there's the health insurance, the favorable tax treatment. They had kids together. They wanted to be able to have their partner inherit their estates and be on the on the deed of their ho- home and, and be on their joint checking account, all these things, and be able to visit them in the hospital or visit them in prison, you name it. All the things that a marriage license gives you for $35, and at least in Massachusetts, it was $35. <laughs> but if you try, try, if you can't get married and you're trying to give your partner, your life partner, those same rights and access and all of that, you have to write a will and a power of attorney and a healthcare proxy and a living will. And you have to like change all of your accounts and all sorts of things to to try to mimic marriage. And that costs thousands and thousands of dollars. And I used to do this for clients before we had Equal Marriage in Massachusetts. And I tried so hard to keep my costs low because, because this is so critical, especially if you have kids together. And so I, I would do this for like $1,500, $2,000. But if you wanted to have a trust, if you really wanted to, if you wanted to co-adopt your children together so that the non-biological parent had right 
you had parental rights to the kids you had together, that was thousands and thousands of dollars more. And even if you did all of those things and spent your thousands of dollars and got every single possible piece of paper, it would not be recognized outside of your state. So we had stories of people that took all their paperwork with them when they took their kids to Disney, and then somebody ends up in the emergency room and the non-biological parent can't visit the kid. Oh, wow. um, and also it doesn't, you can't capture what's called the common law rights of marriage. So uh, what we know of as marriage today is a combination of both state law as well as centuries of common law, case law that talks about what the married partners are entitled to and what they can do. So you, no matter what pieces of paper you have, you can't say common law rights attach because common law is case law. But we all had clients who wanted to get married. And, and for my, in my case, the clients who wanted to get married were the, the teacher and the police officer who lived together in the South Shore and had kids. <laughs> Just oh, like, wow. when are we going to do this? The, the fellow who ended up homeless because he had moved in with his boyfriend, who was also his employer, and things fell apart. So when he lost his job and his home at the same time, when he was kicked out of, of his boyfriend's house, Wow. And he said, if we'd had the right to marry, I would have asked him to marry me. And he would have said no, and I would have known. But because he didn't didn't have that right, he never knew that the fellow was not committed to him in the same way that he was committed to him. So anyway, so we're to go back to the to the story. So all of these lawyers across the country had similar stories and had clients that wanted to be married for all the same reasons that everybody would like to be able to marry their loved one, not everybody, but people who want to get married need to get married. And we began to work out of those conversations. So the Supreme Court cases came down, we lost our parade case, they won in Colorado. My mother called me when we lost the parade case and said, but this means they've, they've won the Colorado case. <laughs> At some point that this was our thinking. And wow. sure enough, if you, that, that's exactly what happened. An incredible decision written by Justice Kennedy that talked about basic human rights again, that you can't exclude people from your social contract just because you don't like them. Do you so, think that they brought on the the parade case to kind of off balance this? Like, do you think that they just weren't ready to say yes to too many things and they just say no to something? Or also, what was their rationale? Yeah, that was such a good question. So the Supreme Court operates by what's called a rule of four. So you don't need a majority of the justices to vote to review a case. You only need, there are nine justices right now. We need to expand the court, but we can talk about that later. So <laughs> there are nine justices. So four of them vote to review a case. That's all it takes. I'm not really sure why they d decided to review our case. It was very much based on our state law and state anti-discrimination law. But when the Veterans Council that became was the private group that tried to privatize the parade, and they never succeeded in doing that, but they attempted to, when they appealed, they appealed on the basis of their First Amendment rights. So in a lot of ways, the parade case foreshadows how we see the religious liberty laws being used as not just a shield, but a sword against our communities, and how the First Amendment has been expanded by the right-wing reactionaries on the court to really envelop all sorts of rights of other people. So it's never was intended to do this. It was meant to protect minorities, the minority view, and it's being used as a cudgel in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. So basically what the Supreme Court did was that they reinvented the parade. This was a parade that was a public celebration sponsored by the city of Boston for all of its many years, over 100 years. 
and the South Boston Allied War veterans were the administrators of the administration, the managers of the parade, because it took place mostly in South Boston. And the Supreme Court sort of turned that on its head and said the South Boston Allied War veterans were the private people that private organization that ran this parade. And so they got to say who was in it. And mm -hmm. if you're going to rewrite history, then this is a very, a very simple First Amendment case. And of course, parade can be an expression of somebody's opinions and themes and things like that. And so a private party should be able to say who's in it. But as Heather McGee, <laughs> and I, an Irish name, how about that, <laughs> so, has written a whole book about how basically the white establishment closed parks and filled in swimming pools rather than integrate after Brown versus Board of Education. And we argued those same exact cases in this case, that after given this 100-year history of the city of Boston celebration, that the managers of the parade privatized rather than accept a group that they by law were required to include and so, and in those circumstances, you can't suddenly become something that you're not just to discriminate. So like I right. said, there was no application process. There was a registration form. Every single registration form basically went through a rubber stamp. And when my gay and lesbian Irish clients registered, then suddenly there was a problem. So you can't mm -hmm. run an institution like that and then suddenly say, oh, no, never mind, we're private. So when you've let everybody in for all this time. And we talked about the history of all of the restaurants that reinvented themselves as private clubs rather than integrate private schools that were made into public schools that were made into private schools, public parks that were made private clubs everywhere to stop integration. And we said the same thing had happened here, but obviously the court wasn't too keen on that either. So I don't really know why they, we think in some ways that they thought there were a lot of parade cases potentially coming to them. There had been the New York one and there was Boston and they just wanted to sort of draw a line in the sand and say, no, we're not going to have these kinds of cases. I don't even know. I don't know what what all happened. That. But that's good. It's good to know the thinking and why they went there. But where yeah. you were like, no, we have a case because you can't just change who you are just to exclude certain people. Right. So, Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So that happens. <laughs> and and, and there's, a, there's a loss there, uh, unfortunately. There's a win in Colorado. But even the bigger win of you are now in fellowship with other lawyers who are kind of saying, hey, we're all facing the same thing, which is we want marriage to be legalized for same-sex partners. And that's and that was really sort of the trajectory that GLAD was going to be on anyway, but I think it's really speeded up because we all kind of were working together on. So GLAD tackled the project of like, how are we going to bring equal marriage to our community? And right. at that point, I had spent almost four, almost five years on the parade case pro bono. So I couldn't do as much pro bono work with GLAD as I, as I had been doing for a while, but I continued to help where I could with what became the National Marriage Project, which was to identify, to do a 50-state review of statutes and case law to figure out where was the best place to bring the test litigation to give us equal marriage. And there was another group, Lambda, that was working on the West Coast that brought a marriage case in Hawaii that didn't work out the way it was exactly hoped. But the East Coast GLAD case that was brought was in Vermont. And they won. And they won the right. Uh, they brought a marriage case and they won. And then 
But then the Vermont Supreme Court said, this is great. You can have the right to marry, but we're going to call it a civil union. And it's not going to be quite the same, but but you'll have the civil union and that's sort of going to be marriage like marriage, but not quite. So the work was not done. It was a huge step forward. And a lot of people from Massachusetts and around the country all went to Vermont to at least get civilly unionized, <laughs> so to have something. And then the case was brought in Massachusetts. And How was the civil union recognized outside of Vermont? Yes, it's a state-by-state state thing. So we have a, a legal tradition of what's called the full faith and credit clause of the Constitution that the legal judgments and statutes of one state should be recognized in another state as well. But it's very state by state because states will tell you that if there's a law in your state that's contrary to our statutes and our public policy, we're not going to recognize it. So like when there were laws against interracial marriage in some states, other states recognized interracial marriage. So you don't have to enforce other laws from other states. So it's a little bit of a, a ongoing tension to resolve those issues. But yes, yeah, so civil unions were recognized in some states, not other states. And then the test case was filed in Massachusetts that eventually it was called the Goodridge decision that led to our state Supreme Court recognizing full equal marriage rights for the same-sex couples. And wow. that's that laid the groundwork for other states to begin to do the same thing. So wow. it's very, very exciting to have been a small part of that and then to see that happen and to overcome the objections right here in Massachusetts. So even when we won the Supreme Court decision, Supreme Judicial Court decision, excuse me, that's our state highest court, the court decided to give the state six months in which to get ready for equal marriage. And the intention, so before, usually court decision is decided, it goes into effect immediately. There's no lag time. But the SJC said things have to change. Like we've got to update marriage licenses and all sorts of paperwork has to be changed and stuff like that. So we'll give the state six months to plan how to implement this decision. And Governor Romney, a Republican, was governor at the time, and he spent those six months trying to figure out how to stop the decision and oh <laughs> reached out to every <laughs> attorney general in every state to ask what their laws were so that, that they could prevent. He wanted to prevent Massachusetts from becoming the Las Vegas of gay marriage. So that wow. <laughs> allow people from any state that didn't have equal marriage to get married here. He wanted to stop out-of-staters from being married here a district attorney and to throw the town clerk of Provincetown in jail for issuing marriage licenses to out-of-state couples. So I represented Provincetown during all this time, and they were dealing with those threats and wow. beat back again and again, all sorts of threats to equal marriage. And it went into effect in May of that year. And as my administrative assistant said at the time, this is wonderful. Everyone's getting married at the same time. <laughs> so <when laughs> equal marriage happened. There was a huge pent up demand, as you can imagine, folks that had been together for 20, 30, 50 years, folks that had been together for a year or two, all wanted yeah. to get married. And I was president of the Women's Bar Association at the time. And first openly gay president of the Moons Bar Association. It was the right, right moment for that. And there had been such backlash against the equal marriage decision that we trained and sent legal observers to every single major city and town where folks would be getting their marriage licenses as soon as it was allowed to happen so that we could have people there to help them if, if there were folks trying to stop it or clerks that didn't want to issue licenses and all of that. And so we had deployed our, our teams of lawyers across the state 
And I was at Boston City Hall and watching this amazing line of people lining up for their marriage licenses. And I kept getting calls from around the state for people saying, it's really busy here, but there's no problem. But we really want to stay because this is really cool. Is that okay? <laughs> so, <laughs> so we get a fantastic day. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Make sure that happened. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty, pretty and cool. And there were the the line. I think Cambridge beat out everybody because they opened up City Hall at midnight of the day that they could allow equal marriage, and the, the City Hall was oh, wow. flooded. And people just came out of their homes and in the dark of night and just like outside celebrating. Provincetown. A lot of people went to Provincetown to be married, and folks were sending just like calling up every florist in Provincetown, saying, "Just deliver flowers." Everybody in line. <laughs> so like every single florist is like delivering flowers to complete strangers. It was just the most amazing thing. And everywhere you went in Boston that whole week. My office was right across from a beautiful garden in the old city hall on School Street. And they were like people getting married in the garden all week long. <laughs> so because wow. everybody was like, we don't know how long this is also going to last. So it was a pretty incredible time. For those of you who would like to know more about our guest today, civil rights attorney Gretchen Van Ness, or about the LGBTQ Senior Housing Project, stay tuned for next week and check out their website, lgbtqseniorhousing.org. Thank you all for listening in to this week's episode of Imago Gay, as we explore ways of building bigger communities and bigger boxes for a bigger God. If you are enjoying the content, please be sure to rate this podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcast and share this episode with a friend. You can reach me, your host, at Kendra R. Snow with an X. And just a reminder, for those of you looking for LGBTQ community, SDA Kinship is a resource for LGBTQ Adventist, non-Adventist, ex-Adventist, and other faith affiliates who are looking to find safe space in the LGBTQ world. So please be sure to sign up and become a member today at sdakinship.org. I also want to give a big shout out to our sponsor for this week, Spectrum Magazine, because they are diligent at making safe spaces for challenging theological dialogue, and they need your support to keep conversations like these going. Today's episode was produced and engineered by yours truly and sponsored by Spectrum Magazine at spectrummagazine.org and SDA Kinship International.